The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by Kingsters for Kingsters, Poly, Queer, Transfolk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. In its fourth season of presenting personalities as their authentic selves, this is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, the official podcast of FetishCon. It's an intimate conversation with people inside the kink and fetish worlds, as well as other educators and sex-positive personalities sharing their stories of what makes them who they are. And now, here is your host, John, or as they are known in the kink and fetish communities. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and to our listeners, welcome. We're starting off the month of November with a bit of education from a good friend. And next week, we're going to look back into history, into the world's oldest profession. It's a great way to start the months that get a little bit colder. And we start with a coach and lecturer who's been on our program more times than anybody else. Dr. Allison Ash, a.k.a. Dr. Allie, is a trauma-informed intimacy coach and educator, Stanford University lecturer, author, and founder of TurnOn.Love. As a sociologist with a Ph.D. from Stanford, Dr. Allie has a comprehensive understanding of the complex societal challenges that often lead to unsatisfying and disempowering intimate experiences. She designs workshops, courses, and retreats, and offers individuals and couples coaching to give others the tools to be able to cultivate and sustain nourishing emotional and sexual intimacy. Dr. Allie invites you to turn on pleasure, intimacy, and love at www.turnon.love. Dr. Alice Nash, Dr. Allie, on what women and other wonderful humans want. What was the genesis of what made our guests who they are? We begin that journey with the first five. Five questions about firsts. Always good to have Dr. Allison Ash, otherwise known as Dr. Allie, with us on the show. This is your third time, isn't it? My third time and, and such a delight to come back again. Always great having you. You have been teaching a lot of classes online. I know you do a lot of lectures in person. Tell us what you've been up to lately. Well, yes, as you've said, I've been doing a ton of teaching. I've been lecturing at Stanford University. I've been offering virtual courses and workshops as well as in-person offerings. I'm doing a month-long course right now called Sustainable Intimacy, Reignite the Flame for the Long Game for Couples which will be available on demand. And then in January, I'm very excited to be offering my sexual and emotional intimacy skills course again, which will be a live instruction, virtual uh, eight-week course. 
So folks can tune in anywhere around the world. The classes are recorded. So if you're not in the right time zone, you can still access the material. And um, it's just such a joy to get to help folks dive into intimacy skills because it's something that everybody can learn with proper instruction and practice. But unfortunately, it's really hard to find access to it. And so it feels like such a, a privilege to get to be a source of that for folks. What are people missing in intimacy? What's the number one thing that really needs to be reignited to attain a good relationship with intimacy? Oh, just one? Maybe I can give you my top three. That's great. I would say one piece is self-reflection, which includes self-awareness, knowing yourself, as well as self-expression. So being vulnerable in sharing your inner landscape with those that you want to be close to you. I think another piece is looking at the ways in which we feel shame and hide parts of ourselves and deny our truth, whether that's around our desires and pleasures, our insecurities and fears, the ways that we experience what I like to call libido blockers, things like shame or getting, I mean, getting stuck in your head or feeling pressure. And learning how to share that with those that we feel safe and comfortable with. Because when we don't share what we're afraid and ashamed of, then the shame festers. And it's through sharing it with other people that we can move through the shame and find the healing and self-acceptance that's so powerful. And then empathy. I think empathy is such a missing skill. Everybody kind of knows what empathy is, but few people are able to do it well. We think that empathy is relating. Oh, me too. Or sometimes even one-upping. Oh, you think that breakup was bad. Let me tell you about mine. Or trying to fix it or offer solutions rather than just getting how somebody's feeling, the impact of how they're feeling, expressing that you care. And shame and empathy are related. Empathy is one of the most powerful ways to help people move through shame. And of course, we could talk about sexual pleasure and all of those other things too, but I really think vulnerability, self-expression, moving through shame, giving and receiving empathy is fundamental to being able to create both emotional as well as sexual intimacy. You can have hot sex without maybe exploring those things, but the depths of sexual intimacy, the depths of vulnerable exploration and diving into your kinks and unfolding all of those core materials and, and inner truth requires these skills. Can someone be too vulnerable or is vulnerability a gift? I think vulnerability is a gift and vulnerability is also something that we need to titrate into, meaning that we want to escalate our vulnerability in an attuned way, both so that we know that the person with whom we're being vulnerable has the capacity to hold it, that they're trustworthy, that they can empathize, that they will accept us and hopefully reciprocate with their own vulnerability. That's what creates intimacy's mutual shared vulnerability. We also want to titrate our vulnerability because we don't want to overwhelm somebody. If it feels like misattuned to the depth of the intimacy of the relationship, then they might feel flooded by it or ill-equipped to know how to respond or like they're being dumped upon and so we want to be able to give little vulnerable bits 
see how it's received, see how it's reciprocated, and then maybe deepen. And and that that the depth of a vulnerability requires some time and some familiarity and comfort to be able to get to. I have heard from women and actually all genders, but especially women, that vulnerability is a very nice thing to be able to see. But I'll also hear that there's a lot of complaints that men are scared of being vulnerable. True? I think that in our society, we equate vulnerability with weakness. Mm. I really love the phrase courageous vulnerability because it reframes vulnerability as something that requires courage. It requires bravery to self-reveal in the face of not knowing how somebody's going to receive it and in the face of perceived potential rejection, which I think is always why people hold back their vulnerability. And when we can be vulnerable, we are teaching people who we are and how to love us and how to be close to us. And it also creates permission for other people to be vulnerable with us, which is so important. And I think that's why a lot of people are wanting their partners to be more vulnerable so that we can understand their user manual, if you will, as well as feel the permission to share our own. And people do not come with a user manual. That is one of the things that absolutely is so interesting in the dating world. I can speak personally that dating at age 60 was a lot different than dating at age 20. I think that the experience I had then is not helping me at all these days. It's a scary world out there. A lot of times it's because I hear horror stories from women who say, well, you're just going to be the next guy who does it to me. And I go, does what? Because I come in with, with this naive, happy, hopeful sound. Yet what I hear back is, oh, no, you're just like everybody else. And that's scary because... I don't even know what I'm supposed to be. Right. And I think that we see the world through the lens of our past experiences. Our past experiences shape what we pay attention to and what we perceive and the ways that we might be hypervigilant or bracing or anticipating certain behaviors or types of interactions. And when I hear that, I hear, oh, there are some wounds here. There's some real hurt, likely some trauma mm -hmm. around the ways in which this person or these folks have been harmed by past lovers and partners. And, you know, on one hand, I hope that you can learn about their landmines, learn about their triggers, learn about their tender parts and how to be sensitive to them so that you can template a different kind of intimacy, mm -hmm. a different kind of partnership. And it also requires them to be able to be aware and vulnerable and share that with you and give you an opportunity to be different. And as you said, we don't come with a user manual. I often think this is part of what adulting is. It's discovering our user manual, learning how to love 
us like what what is required to feel safe to feel loved to feel cared for to feel pleasure and then learning how to share that with the people that we want to be close to you lecture at stanford so you get to be there with some youthful people i'm sure there's some older people because it is stanford but very well educated people are they optimistic about the future of love and intimacy, or are they a little scared? Oh, it's a mix of both. You know, I have students for whom they have had very little sexual interactions or romantic interactions. It feels inaccessible or out of reach or daunting and overwhelming. I have students who have had really traumatic experiences, even at age 18 through 22. You know, I've had traumatic experiences at age 16. It happens to folks all throughout the life course, right? And so then they're learning about how to move through those traumas, how to create a different kind of intimacy and relating. And and then I have folks where they're eager beavers and excited, and it just feels like this whole world of potential possibilities and it feels like they're wanting to up level something that already feels empowering and exciting for them and i think this is true for folks who are outside of college and grad school and whatever age they are there's a wide range of kinds of coaching clients that i work with in terms of how they relate to intimacy and what they're bringing to the table and the ways that i can support them in having a conversation with Venus of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast a few weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that communication is the number one thing that anybody needs, whether they're kinky or just having a relationship. Is communication getting better between people or are we dealing with the challenges of people who like to text rather than talk? That's an interesting question, and I haven't read any research on this, so I'm not coming from a well-informed on what the current social science might say. My sense is that it's a both and. I think that as vulnerability becomes more permissible and as there is more emotional intelligence taught in our school systems, it's amazing the ways that even in preschools and, and lower elementary schools, how they're talking about emotions and helping kids identify how they're feeling and name those feelings. I mean, that was something that I never was exposed to in school. And so I think that there's a way in which we're holding emotional intelligence and communication very differently, which is a positive. And I do think that there is a way in which I wish that more people would have sensitive, tender conversations, not via text. You know, there are certain kinds of conversations that are really helpful to have over text and then certain kinds of conversations that should not be done over text. And, um, you know, I think that there's a variety of ways that people communicate these days and that's, that's a positive and, um, yeah, certainly trying to help my younger clients learn how to have more face-to-face -face interactions. What's the most surprising thing you've learned from your students and the younger people now that you are kind of like, 
Wow, that's different. I think one of the things that's really inspiring for me is to see how much greater acceptance there is around the diversity of sexual orientations, of gender identities and expressions, of relationship styles, whether that's, you know, students who are asexual and embracing that or queer and embracing that students who are non-binary or trans non-monogamous it's amazing to see such young folks exploring and practicing non-monogamy that was not anything that i was exposed to at that age uh and as well as kink and exploring different ways of playing with BDSM and power dynamics. I had a student in my class just last week ask me about consensual non-consent, which I thought was a very advanced and edgy question. And I, I just really appreciate the ways in which they're grappling with the intricacies and the nuances of intimacy and relating. It leads to kind of a big subject and a, one that's almost scary to talk about, but is the youth that is growing up now going to finally be able to open up acceptance of things that we would never dream of being accepted? That's is hope. it going to become more the norm than the interesting example? Well, I think that each generation pushes our social progress along. I used to teach this course called Destroying Dichotomies, and it was all about exploring folks who inhabit the middle ground between the binaries of male, female, straight, gay, um, masculine, feminine. And one of the things that I would show was an interview that Oprah did with Ellen DeGeneres when she first came out. Mm -hmm. And the types of questions that Oprah asked Ellen would never be okay to ask these days. And the concessions that Ellen was making, I remember Ellen said something to the effect of my sister doesn't want me alone around her kids anymore. And I understand. And I think that there's a way in which culturally we were holding gay identities and expressions as so deviant <clears throat> and my students were shocked to be exposed to that because it was so far removed from the way that we relate to people who are not straight nowadays. And then I showed them an interview that Oprah did, you know, decades later with Chastity Bono, who is a trans individual. And again, the types of questions that Oprah was asking and, uh, you know, about their genitalia and the surgeries that they've had. I mean, just questions that we know are totally inappropriate. And again, like seeing that the ways that we relate to these topics and the ways that we hold it and our understanding of what's appropriate, not appropriate. And beyond that, what's fair, what's kind, what's empathetic, what's acceptable is growing it's changing and i appreciate these cultural markers because it really does allow us to see how far we've come one thing that i have come to discover in my own journey 
of understanding gender, understanding non-binary, understanding gender fluid, which I identify as, is that gender is the soul, it's not the body parts. Because it's what someone has in their being, not what they appear like on the outside. And I think if more people understood that, I think they'd be more embracing, not even more accepting, but more embracing. That's right. And I think you're talking about the difference between gender identity, gender expression, biological sex. And those are distinct aspects of self. And for a lot of folks, biological sex doesn't align with gender identity and expression. And also for a lot of folks, their biological sex does not fit into the neat little categories of male, female, right? There's a non-insignificant portion of our population that is intersex. There's over 200 different intersex conditions. We've somewhat arbitrarily made these markers of what puts somebody in the male category and what puts somebody in the female category. And until very recently, we've surgically shoehorned babies that are not clearly male or female into one or the other. And I think that there's a way here in which people certainly conflate sex with gender in ways that can be really harmful. You said 200 over 200? I believe so. Yeah, there's over 200 different variations of how intersexuality can be expressed. That's amazing. There's a book called Sexing the Body, which is a fantastic book to read about understanding uh, intersexuality and and, uh, how we all relate to these concepts of male and female. That's amazing. We're going to take a break here on what women and other wonderful humans want. And when we come back, we're going to talk a lot about navigating conflict and repairing ruptures in relationships. It's something that Dr. Allie is very passionate about. And we'll talk about that when we come back. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, with special thanks to Kinkster Merch on Etsy. For more than three years, we have presented this podcast as a labor of love without paid advertisers. We do this as we want to give back to this wonderful community for all the gifts it has given us. If you want to financially support our efforts, please visit bit.ly slash thanks catsuit and give what you can to help Catsuit travel, teach, and bring you great in-person interviews. We will give you that address again later in the show. Now, here are some words from Catsuit's friends about things you should know about. Hi, Catsuit. Thank you so much for sharing your wholesome space with the team of Fetish Bacchanal. Sparkle the Brat and I, Goddess Alanis, will be hosting a three-day Kingfield retreat in Jamaica, June 28th to the 30th, 2024. This is going to be an escape of a property with a cleansing mineral cave right in the heart of it. Follow at Fetish Bacchanal on Twitter for more updates on ticket links, vending, performances, and more. 
Welcome to the Yoniverse. I'm Scarlett. And I'm Anya. The Flaming Yoni podcast is a celebration of the beautiful and unique expressions of female sexuality. From asexual to megasexual, from lifelong monogamy to relationship anarchy, from deep spiritual bonds of sacred union to spur the moment flames. It is all infused with Yoni energy. Search for the Flaming Yoni on your favorite podcast platform. You will not leave the same as when you came. We are proud to be the official podcast of FetishCon, and we want you to join us in St. Petersburg, Florida, August 8th through 11th, 2024. The trade show brings together models, producers, industry leaders, and fans from all over the world and brings you great classes in kink or how to become an industry professional. You can get all the details at fetishcon.com. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Empowering designs for fetish models, doms, sex workers, or anyone else who needs to be seen as their authentic selves. Visit the What Women Want podcast store at Kingster Merch on Etsy to see those and other wonderful designs for all kinksters. Now, back to the show and more with our guests on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you, Nookie, and welcome back to the program. Joined by Dr. Allison Ash, also known as Dr. Allie, a trauma-informed intimacy, intimacy coach, easy for me to say, and educator, Stanford University lecturer and author and founder of Turn On Love. I remember when we first talked uh, three episodes ago, many episodes ago, but three episodes ago for us, about the start of Turn On Love. How has that grown over the years? Oh, it's such a, it's my baby. I love Turn On Love. It's uh, it's grown in that we have a ton of on-demand offerings now. We have over 20 uh, offerings that folks can rent anytime from the comfort and privacy of their home. More courses, uh, retreats. I also have hired another coach who's working alongside me, Sebastian, who is fantastic. And we make a wonderful team. And it's just been really sweet to dive deeper into the communities that I can reach, the quantity of offerings that I have, and the the length and the depth of the offerings, more courses, more longer form offerings. We were talking before the break about how people to get, get together and how intimacy evolves. But obviously when people get into relationships, they have intimacy that is a little bit like a roller coaster from time to time. There can be great times, there can be okay times, there can be bad times. 
And repairing those conflicts is something that you've taken a deep dive in recently. So why is repairing conflicts important for creating sustainable intimacy? Well, conflict is inevitable. When we are creating intimacy, we are opening ourselves up to hurt. And I think a lot of people are conflict avoidant. They're afraid of conflict. And that can come at the cost of not creating intimacy, of keeping ourselves at a distance or avoiding or withholding hard conversations and topics, not owning and acknowledging our needs or our boundaries or facing disappointment, which hello folks, it is inevitable. No matter how much emotional or mental gymnastics you may do, you can never avoid 100% of the time being disappointed or feeling disappointing. It's just part of the nature of having different needs, different boundaries, and not always being able to meet people in the ways that we want to be met. And so If you can feel confident in your capacity to navigate conflict well, to repair hurts, to repair misunderstandings, to address when boundaries are crossed intentionally or unintentionally, oftentimes we don't know we have a boundary until it's been crossed, Mm -hmm. but that still can lead to a repair, a, a hurt that needs to be repaired. And so when we can feel confident about our ability to repair, then intimacy feels less scary and less risky and we can actually create more depth in our relationships. Especially since we have such a sex positive audience with this particular podcast. I think a lot of people might jump to the conclusion that intimacy is about the time that you're in the bedroom or the time that you are are being intimate with each other. But intimacy is about communication. It's about the togetherness that people feel. And when you talk about all the things you've just talked about, communication seems to be the number one link that can go to repair a lot of these things. But communication isn't just words, it's also actions. That's right. And intimacy, there's many different kinds of intimacy. There's emotional intimacy, there's physical intimacy, there's sexual intimacy, there's intellectual intimacy. There's all sorts of different ways that we can create closeness. And I think communication, as you're saying, is the thread that weaves them all. When is the right time, if you're just really feeling like things may be falling apart, when is the right time to repair? Is it right when you're feeling it? Or is it taking a little bit of inventory and figuring out what's going on here? What is it I need to do? And is this the right time to bring it up? I love this question. I think that this is one of the challenges a lot of folks face when trying to do repair work is they're angry and hurt and they're really dysregulated in their nervous system and they want to repair right away because they want to fix it. They want to get to some sort of solution or because they're so upset and so angry, they want to express it and have the other person really get how hurt they are and how upset they are. And and let's just take a step back for a moment and name most often hurt I mean anger pardon me most often anger is covering deep hurt and so when people are really angry it can be helpful for them and for others to get to what is that anger protecting what is it 
what is underneath it and that's that's the pain and of of feeling disconnected or rejected or betrayed or misunderstood or disappointed or whatever else it may be and so that doesn't mean that you can't be angry and repair but there's a way that you can be angry and hurt and you can be within your window of tolerance meaning that you can be regulated enough in your nervous system that you have all of your faculties online and then there's times that you can be really angry or hurt and you're outside of your window of tolerance meaning that your prefrontal cortex the part of your brain that's responsible for social connection and empathy and memory and reasoning and logic and expression and communication is getting bypassed and you're moving either towards fight flight or freezing collapsing and you're disadvantaged in your ability to repair well because you're actually not functioning at a hundred percent and so it's important to take inventory not just of your hurt not just of how you feel and 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 what you want to share and say but also how your nervous system is doing do you feel like you can express yourself in a way that is going to help you feel heard or are you going to be so dysregulated that the other person isn't going to be able to even hear you let alone repair with you and so if you're really dysregulated one or you or both of you is is really upset then engage in some self-soothing activities i will throw myself in the shower, a long shower, and I will mutter, all of my mutterings. And and then that really helps me move through it so that I can come out and express myself in a way that feels maybe still heated, but clear. And in a way that I'm actually not going to have a shame over because I said things that were hurtful or harmful or just actually not expressing myself in a way that felt like it was helping the other person understand my experience. Uh, maybe for you, it's listening to some music or going for a walk around the block. Or um, another fa- favorite of mine is to go in my car and roll down the windows and scream uh, while I'm driving on a freeway, right? So it's like, nobody can actually hear me, but I have this feeling of being heard and I'm on the freeway. So I'm going fast. Ah! Like it's just, It helps get it out of the nervous system. You can try shaking your body, uh, maybe getting your hands and feet in the dirt, whatever it is, figuring out what helps soothe yourself and or engage in some co-regulation, some soothing behaviors with somebody else, not the person that you are in the conflict with. Go talk to a friend, go talk to uh, another lover or or somebody where you can vent a little bit, you can not have to worry about saying things pretty, you can get some perspective, and then you can come back more regulated and have that tense, hard conversation with the person that you actually need to repair with. One metric that I think can be really helpful is if you don't have access to curiosity and empathy, you're not ready to repair. The question that I have gone about or the the statement that I will make, I learned this in in, uh, all things in an outpatient therapy program that I took when I was just so exhausted mentally a few years ago. 
And I learned the power of the word I and the danger of overusing the word you. And it opened my eyes, E-Y-E, it opened my eyes to a totally different way of communicating. Is that important in the repair process? Most definitely. If you're speaking with a lot of yous that are full of blame and shame, the other person is almost certainly going to get defensive. And then you're going to get stuck in this dynamic where they are trying to convince you that your experience is different than how it is because they're trying to defend themselves. And that's just going to send that repair conversation down a disastrous path. And so owning your own experience, I feel uh, when this happened, I was impacted in this way. Oftentimes I like using a phrase, I interpreted it to mean this, or I made up a story that this was your experience. That's different than saying, you don't care about me. To say, when you're always late, I make up this story or I interpret that action as though you don't care about me. And it has me feel that my time isn't as valued and prioritized. And then I feel frustrated and angry and like, I don't want to continue to invest in this relationship because I worry it's not reciprocal. That's a very different way that, of, of, of saying it then you're always late and you don't care about me and how come you are so irresponsible and you do not consider it and you're selfish. How important is apology in repairing? Apologies are important, but I think apologies have an action more than a word. People say, I'm sorry, and feel like that is the bow on it, and you're done, and they should just forgive you, and all is good and well. And I think what's more important than the words, I'm sorry, is to demonstrate that you get the other person's experience. You really understand how they're feeling, what the impact is. You empathize with how they're feeling and what the impact is. Empathy is so vitally important and people actually can be stingy with empathy in a repair conversation because the worry that if they empathize it's saying you're right i'm wrong but the reality is is that you're going to have your experience and i'm going to have my experience there are two subjective experiences can i empathize with your really get how you are feeling and how you are processing this whole experience and realize that that doesn't mean that I am having to abandon my own truth in the process. I also think it's really important to have accountability. What can you own? What did you do that was less helpful or hurtful or inconsiderate or absent-minded or self-absorbed or whatever else it is? If you can own then they don't feel like they have to hold on to that hurt and anger by themselves because you get it and you're taking responsibility and then they can actually start to let it go. And then sometimes apologies also include offering genuine reassurances and they have to be genuine. They have to be believable. Do not say I'll never be late again or I'm never going to hurt you again. That is not possible. It's it's not believable. But you can say, I'm really working on my time management. I will do better at communicating with you when I'm going to be late. Or I 
can't promise I'll never hurt you again, but I'm certainly going to try because I care about you and I care about this relationship. And if I do hurt you, I promise I'll show up for the repair process because I'm investing in this relationship. And that's the thing is a repair is an investment in the relationship. We do not repair with people that we don't want to be close with. I got to take some classes while I was teaching at Kinky College about a year ago. And one of the classes I took was from Master So-and-So. I always loved that name, Master So-and-So. And the name of his class was Loving Yourself How To. And we had taken this amazing 47 minutes of a 50-minute class. And someone raised their hand and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you. And Master So-and-So got this incredulous look on his face and said, quit fucking saying I'm sorry. And the woman sat back in her chair and she was scared that she'd done something. And he explained that when you say I'm sorry, but there's no true apology that goes with it, you have basically taken a sledgehammer to your knee and knocked yourself down a notch. And if you say it again, you do it again and do it again until you truly are sorry. So the importance of knowing the damage that you say when you're saying, I'm sorry, just to say it vis-a-vis, I'm sorry, because I may have hurt you that can be just as damaging. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks also say, I'm sorry, because they feel guilty for having needs or for having boundaries. Even something as simple as, I'm sorry, do you have a bathroom? <laughs> it's just, when we can get clear about our needs, deal with the baggage that so many of us have around having needs and expressing needs and having boundaries and expressing boundaries, then we can actually feel less guilty for being human and for having our own experience and reserve those apologies for when we're actually sorry for harm that we've caused or ways that we've missed somebody in an interaction. What are some of the ways that folks go wrong when they're trying to repair? One of the things that I like to talk to my clients about is the difference between having an emotional conversation and a practical conversation. And I think one of the ways that folks go wrong is they're trying to have both conversations at the same time. Mm -hmm. So an emotional conversation, you're talking about how you're feeling. The appropriate responses are empathy, reassurance, validation, normalization. A practical conversation, when you're trying to figure out an issue or a challenge, then you want to respond with logistics and agreements and problem solving. And if I'm sharing how I'm feeling, which is an emotional conversation, and you're trying to fix it, then I'm actually not getting what I need, which is to feel heard and understood, that you get it, that you care, that you empathize, that you can offer reassurances, and we're missing each other. And another way that repair conversations can go awry is if two people are both trying to have their side and their experience heard at the same time. So you're telling me what your experience was, and I'm responding with what my experience was. And again, neither person is getting 
their needs met, which is to feel heard and understood and empathized with. And so I think a better way of structuring repair conversations is to have one person go first. So let's say you're really hurt and upset with me. And I say, okay, please tell me, how are you feeling? What was this experience like for you? And I hear what you're saying. I let you know what I'm hearing to make sure I got it correctly. And I'm not mistaking or, or, or emphasizing the wrong parts or forgetting details. Then I'm empathizing with it. I'm owning what I can. I'm offering reassurances and not, no explanations. Explanations are trying to, can, well, they may not try to convey, but they are conveying that how you feel, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be feeling how you feel, that I'm talking you out of how you're feeling and it can invalidate your experience. So I'm not offering any explanations. I'm just offering the empathy, the accountability, the reassurances. And then I might say, can I share with you my experience? And we take turns in this way. That really helps people stop talking past each other mm -hmm. and being able to meet each other in the hurt. And one simple tool you can use is a tennis ball. Whoever is holding the tennis ball is the one that is speaking. And when you have finished with your thought, you hand the ball over to someone, uh, the other person, and it's their turn. And when they're done, they hand the ball back. And I would, I would add to that, that when you get the tennis ball, it doesn't mean it's now your turn to share your experience. It still means it's now it's your turn to respond to what that person shared and to their experience and keeping the attention on them. I think that it can be really helpful to agree on the onset of a repair conversation, what you, how you want to structure it, what your agreements are, what your guidelines are, uh, not interrupting, raising a hand if you need to take a break, or if you have a question for clarity, turn taking, using I statements, all of these things that can really help a repair conversation go more smoothly. What's a good way, and I think you've mentioned it a little bit there, about structuring a repair conversation? Is it good to open up a notebook and say, here's kind of an agenda, or do you just trust your gut? What's the best way to structure one? I certainly think coming up with some shared guidelines can be really helpful about turn-taking, about empathizing. Um, I think another thing is to remember that there's a difference between intention and impact. And can you own your impact, even if that wasn't your intention? I think a lot of people get so stuck on, but I didn't mean to do that, that it prevents them from being able to really see what the impact was nonetheless. And, and so coming up with those repair guidelines, if you mutually agree to them, there's more buy-in. I think agreeing to take breaks when you're getting dysregulated is so important. Sometimes time boxing it. So that folks know that there is, um, that they're not going to get overly dysregulated, or that it's not going to go past their capacity. So saying, let's talk for an hour, or forty-five minutes, whatever it is, and then let's check in to see if we have the capacity to keep going. Sometimes repair conversations have to happen over multiple conversations, and that's okay. It's good to normalize that. How important is it to let go of what you think? is right and open your mind to the possibilities that there is no right. 
I love that. I think you're right on. There's a difference between choosing to be right and choosing to connect and choosing connection over protection, over self-defensiveness, over feeling like your truth, your experience, your perception is the objective truth and perception. And realizing, as I said earlier, that we all interpret our present moment experiences through the through the lens of our past experiences. So how curious can I get around how you perceive our shared interaction? What stood out to you? What was impactful? What was hurtful? What your needs are? What your boundaries are? How much can I try to learn your user manual? discover your landmines, understand how to love you better. That's why I say curiosity and empathy needs to be online to be able to repair well. What are some do's and don'ts when it comes to repair? I think we've touched on some great ones. I would say uh, definitely avoid going into fix-it mode. There's a time and a place, but that's not what needs to happen on the onset of a repair conversation. Try not to get defensive. Avoid counter critiquing. Well, you think I'm late all the time. You were late last Tuesday night. Da 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 da. Um, being curious, having an open mind, staying in connection. When we disconnect and shut down or give the silent treatment, um, then that communicates rejection, and that can um, add more hurt into the mix. And usually what that means is you're outside of your capacity and your window of tolerance and you need to go self-soothe or co-regulate with somebody else. Avoid overgeneralizing. Nobody is always or never anything. And that is going to put something on the def- somebody on the defensive right away. Um, and I think if you know what you want to hear or what you need, you can tell them. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be able to meet it, but Sometimes we make these conversations into a guessing game. I feel like if I if I tell you what I'm the reassurance I want, then it doesn't mean as much. And that's just actually not true. It's helping somebody understand what you need and then they can figure out how to relate to those needs to the best of their abilities. How important is it to not keep score? I think it's really important. I I think it's helpful to focus on the issue at hand and not bring a whole catalog of past issues into the current issue. That makes it so much harder for somebody to repair. Um, And I also think that it's okay to look at patterns and trends. Is somebody continually making the same harmful harmful action somebody continually disrespecting your needs or ignoring your boundaries or not being considerate in a way that you really need to feel safe and to explore what's underneath that and maybe that's getting some outside support and some intervention and sometimes that's skill building sometimes that's doing some healing of your own wounds and and ways that you might have blind spots and shadow material um and that's different than in a repair conversation pulling out the laundry list of every harm and hurt that's happened and trying to make a case by 
demonstrating a, a whole history of things that somebody has to then be accountable for. I will tell you how powerful this conversation has been for me, because I do share things on the program that uh, call it vulnerability. Last, well, four days ago would have been my 29th wedding anniversary if I was still married. And I will tell you all the things that Dr. Alley just talked about. If I had put those into action and words, I might've celebrated that. And I would say the same thing for my, my ex-spouse. If she had put that into actions and words, we'd still be married. It's all about the communication. It's all about realizing that people aren't right, people aren't wrong. You need to come to some common ground. So this has been a very touching conversation. I wish I had it about 18 years ago, but it's a, hopefully a conversation that our listeners can take something from and realize that they can take something that can seem so desperate or something that they think they've lost and bring joy back to it again. So thank you. You are so welcome. And I just feel such tenderness for you because I think most of us don't know how to repair well because it's not well modeled and templated for us. We're not taught it in our school systems, family systems, and we are responding reactively because that's the best that we know how to do in the moment. And so learning how to fight well and repair well is so important. And I'm really glad to get to have this conversation with you and with your listeners. And if your folks want to learn more, I have an on-demand workshop called Repairing Ruptures in Relationships that they can access on my website. I also teach a lot about repair in my upcoming se sexual and emotional intimacy skills course. It starts in January and oftentimes is available on demand. And I also work with my clients around this quite a lot. I have folks who are coming to me trying to heal from an affair or broken agreements or, um, you know, a whole litany of, of painful experiences and intimacy. And I really want to normalize and encourage people to get that outside support. If you're feeling really stuck in those dynamics and you're feeling that you're not getting the traction that you need, it's really courageous to seek in, to seek out that outside support that can really create a different momentum towards healing. How important is it to have neutral ground for those conversations? Very valuable. I think it's helpful to have neutral ground. I also think it's helpful to do it, to set yourself up for success. If you're not a night person, don't do it at night. If you're not a morning person, don't do it in the morning. Don't do it when you're hungry or really stressed with work or haven't slept well. Um, it's, you know, we can put it off, which isn't what I'm advocating either. We do need to prioritize it and attend to our well-being so that we can have these repair conversations but just like we talked about earlier about finding the right time and doing it when you're in your window of tolerance it's also doing it when you feel like you have more capacity and resources and in a place that feels safe to all the parties involved and sometimes that's also having a mediator that's another way to get outside support 
We're going to take a break. And when we come back, get your pencils and papers or pens or your phone out because you could always make a note on your phone. And we're going to learn about the upcoming seminar that Dr. Ali will be having in January because we want you to be able to join her when we come back on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dave and Kinky, with special thanks to Kingster Merch on Etsy. Connect with the show on social media. Follow us on Twitter, because that's what we still call it, at WhatWomenWantP1. On Instagram, as long as they don't suspend us, at WhatWomenWantPodcast. On Pinkster, at WhatWomenWantPodcast. And on FetLife as WWWPodcast. And if you want to follow our host, that's easy as they are Hi There Catsuit on all platforms. We'd love to hear from you, so be sure to reach out. Now, some more words with Catsuit's friends. Are you curious about kink but don't know where to begin? (laughs) Or maybe you have a friend who, while they appreciate your interest in BDSM, they don't really understand what it's all about. You should check out Kink for the Curious. It's a fun little activity book with color pages and word finds, lots of silly puns, <laughs> uh, but lots of solid BDSM and kink information written by somebody who's been in the business for almost 30 years. Kink for the Curious, a BDSM activity book for beginners, written by Princessa Natasha Strange, that's me, (laughs) is available on Amazon. Go get it now. Craptaculous boundaries are not your fault. The more severe the dysfunction you experienced growing up, the more difficult boundaries are for you. David W. Earle. Or as Ms. Titania said, Nobody ever warns you that when you come from dysfunction, a healthy mind can feel unsafe. We spend our lives being controlled by others, so we learn to control others. Or we allow others to control us in exchange for love. Learn more about Take No Shit. Build better relationships through discovering, creating, and maintaining healthy boundaries in three, sometimes five, simple steps at my.curiouser.com. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Thank you for joining us. Please show your support of the show by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our video channel at youtube.com slash at What Women Want Podcast. And to financially support the show, which we greatly appreciate, please visit bit.ly slash thanks, Catsuit, 
and give what you can to help Catsuit travel, teach, and bring you great in-person interviews. We very much appreciate it. This is Milky, and Dating Kinky has brought you this podcast since day one. We believe in great education for our community, and this is just one of our efforts. Please join us at Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla, and it's free. Dr. Allie is my guest on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, appearing for the third time. And as you can tell by this conversation, it's always an amazing conversation. You have the opportunity to have good one-to-one conversations with people in the form of coaching. Tell me about some of the things that would be good for people to know to see if they do need a coach. Sure. Yeah. And I work with individuals and couples and also non-monogamous groups, triads, polycules, all of, all of that. And I help folks learn how to create and sustain healthy, emotional, physical, sexual intimacy. And so that covers a wide range of topics. It could include getting out of their head, being more embodied. It could include exploring their desires and fantasies and relationship to kink. Um, unpacking experiences of shame. I work with a lot of couples where they're not having the level of intimacy that they want and they want to reinvest in their relationship. Folks who are healing from sexual abuse or challenges with erectile dysfunction or anorgasmia. I mean, I'm just starting to touch upon the wide range of things that I work with my folks around. And what I tell people who are reaching out to me for coaching is that I take a dual track approach where on one hand, we're doing experiential skill building because intimacy is a skill. What are the skills that we need practice and, and focus to focus on in order to have the kind of relationships we want, as well as the deeper emotional processing of all of the core material that can show up. Maybe it's attachment styles or family dynamics or trauma history or experiences of, of shame or fear and security that make it hard to actually implement and integrate these skills. And it's through marrying these two approaches, the skill building with the deeper emotional processing, that I find my clients are able to create the real world change that they're seeking. Dr. Ali, you have a great seminar that's coming up in January. Tell us all about it. I'm very excited to be offering my sexual and emotional intimacy skills master course in January. This is an eight week course that includes live instruction happening on an online space. All the classes are recorded for folks who can't attend live or want extra review. I weave science-based data, embodied exploration, skills development with a combination of lecture, optional breakout rooms for discussions and experiential exercises, and plenty of supplemental materials, including handouts, readings, demo videos, And we go over a wide range of topics, including consent and boundaries and embodiment, nervous system care, skills for emotional depth and safety, like empathy, vulnerability, safer heart conversations and affirmations. I talk about flirting, seduction, expressing desire, uh, skills for maximizing pleasure and increasing your capacity to receive and give. We talk about erotica, fantasies, unpacking shame, navigating conflict and repairing ruptures and relationships, and of course, 
picking partners and ending relationships. And even if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship, we are picking people to connect with in a variety of settings and settings and ending relationships all the time. And so learning how to do that well is a missing and necessary skill that we can develop. So please reach out to me. I'm Dr. Allison Ash. You can find me at turnon.love. And I hope to see you at Sexual and Emotional Intimacy Skills or any of my wide range of offerings and on-demand courses sometime soon. And from what I understand, you were offering a discount for our listeners. Oh, yes, of course. If you would like to take sexual and emotional intimacy skills, please use the promo code WWWpodcast for $50 off. That's phenomenal. And I greatly appreciate you doing that for our listeners. And I hope you all will take advantage of that because Dr. Allie is an amazing teacher. Always great to see you. Thank you. It's always a joy to join you. And thank you so much for hosting this podcast and creating such powerful sex positive content for your audience. It's really a generous gift that you're doing. And I see you and I honor you. Always great visiting with Dr. Allie. She is such a fun person to talk to and so informative too. Have you missed an episode or want to catch up on our nearly 200 episodes? All our shows are available in the archives. And here's what's coming up on the next edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. It's a look back into the world's oldest profession with a sex worker and comedian who puts a historic spin on a podcast that enables us to understand just how big the struggle has been for a long, long time and offers some surprises too. She's Caitlin Bailey, and she'll join us next time. New shows premiere every Tuesday on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. And that will do it for this edition of the program. Sorry for sounding a little bit nasally for the opens and closes. I caught one of those wonderful November colds. But I hope you're feeling great as November begins. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time. And I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Join us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWWPodcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free.